1: usually just hearing the phrase UN climate change talks is enough for the eyes of even the most ardent environmentalist to glaze over. But
2: attendees at the recent UN discussions in Warsaw were given a jolt when the delegate from the Philippines described the devastation to his country caused by Typhoon Haiyan.
4: The initial assessment showed that Haiyan left a wake of massive destruction that is unprecedented, unthinkable, and horrific. And the devastation is staggering, I struggle to find words even for the images that we see on the news coverage. And I struggle to find words to describe how I, I feel about the losses. I speak for my delegation, but I, I speak, speak for the countless people who will no longer be able to speak for themselves after perishing from the storm. I speak also for those who have been orphaned by the storm. We can take drastic action now to ensure that we prevent a future where super typhoons become a way of life.
2: Nadarev Sano stated his intention to fast for the duration of the climate talks until a meaningful resolution on carbon emissions was achieved. National delegates responded to his plea with a standing ovation. But will their empathetic response translate into real action I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley, and the heat is on on Big Picture Science, where we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're headed.
1: And there's no bigger question concerning the human future than where climate change is taking us. Some say we're already seeing the effects, and that superstorm Haiyan is a terrifying example. (laughs) But if the damage that is happening now is truly a harbinger of more to come, can we halt it?
2: Well, some say yes if we're willing to make tough choices.
5: The U.S. Navy's Joint Typhoon Warning Center
6: says the maximum sustained winds when the storm made landfall was 195 miles
4: per hour, with gusts up to two. We have storm surge starting to flood the uh, ground floor of the hotel.
6: An estimated two million people live in this storm's danger zone, which is the equivalent of a category five hurricane, and hundreds of-
2: A tropical of- storm is classified as a typhoon or a hurricane, ago, they're the same thing. When winds exceed 74 miles per hour, a Category 5 hurricane has winds
1: blowing at 155 miles an hour. Typhoon Haiyan slammed into the Philippines at speeds of up to 195 miles per hour. Mr. Sano at the U.N. conference drew a clear connection between climate change and Typhoon Haiyan, but can we do the same?
2: Our language... Monster Typhoon Haiyan and Superstorm Sandy suggest that a new phenomenon is afoot. But even if these exceptionally powerful storms aren't a direct result of climate change, things do seem to
1: be changing. Jeff Masters is a meteorologist at Wonderground, a service that provides weather information in real time via the internet.
2: Jeff, is Typhoon Haiyan an example of the sobering reality of climate change?
6: Super Typhoon Haiyan is an example of the future of climate change because as you heat up the oceans, you provide more heat energy to hurricanes and typhoons, which are heat engines and take energy out of the oceans and convert it to the energy of their winds. And we're pretty sure that by the end of the century, as we heat up the oceans, the very strongest typhoons and hurricanes are going to get stronger. But we can't say yet that this is the present of climate change. We don't have a good enough database of hurricanes and typhoons or one that goes back far enough in time to extract the signal from the noise. There's a lot of ups and downs naturally in hurricane and typhoon activity. And at present, we can't say yet that we're seeing an impact of climate change on these great storms.
2: And does it seem, though, that we are seeing some super storms? In fact, that's the term that we use, Superstorm Sandy and Monster Mm. Typhoon Haiyan we have seen some really dramatic, powerful storms in, in the last decade.
6: Yeah, certainly it does give one pause to look at some of the extreme storms we've had in recent years. We've never seen anything like super typhoon high-end. I mean, the satellite presentation of that was unlike anything I've ever seen. I was watching the satellite images hour after hour saying, how much more intense can this get? We've never seen this sort of unbelievable explosion of a typhoon before. And the same thing last year with Hurricane Sandy, we'd never seen anything like that before. To have a storm span 1,000 miles across and be generating tropical storm force winds, doing damage from Canada all the way to Chicago, unprecedented. Certainly, if you put more energy into the atmosphere by heating it, you potentially have more energy for a storm. So perhaps that's what we're seeing now. But there's so few of these extreme events that it's very difficult to say scientifically, yeah, we are seeing an increase in these.
2: When you saw that the winds for the typhoon that hit the Philippines clocked in at 195 miles an hour, did that make that the strongest typhoon that you've witnessed? I mean, how common are our winds at that speed?
6: Typhoon Haiyan hit 195 mile-per-hour winds over the ocean, and we've only ever seen three storms on Earth that have had winds stronger than that. And those all occurred back in the early 1960s or late 1950s before we had satellites, and our measurement techniques weren't so good. And there was reason to believe that those storms were probably not quite so strong. So in the modern age of measurement, Typhoon Haiyan did have the strongest winds estimated of any storm we've ever seen,
2: well, let's get at the relationship of how changing the atmosphere and how warming the planet may give rise to superstorms. Now, you said that as the planet warms, the oceans warm, and you also have more water in the atmosphere because of that. Is that right? And how does that lead to more intense storms?
6: That's right. As you warm the oceans, you're now evaporating more water vapor into the air, And we've observed about a 4% increase in water vapor in the atmosphere since 1970. That may not seem like a lot, but it does shift your odds of extreme events quite significantly because when you happen to get a top-end sort of storm that's got an extra 4% water vapor available to it, then you can see when that water vapor condenses into actual liquid water, it releases the energy that, it took to evaporate it in the first place. It's called latent heat energy. And that heat goes directly into powering the storm, intensifying its updrafts, allowing it to pull in even more water vapor, condensing more of the moisture in it, creating even more heat energy. So you get kind of this amplifying cycle where these one in 10 year sorts of events, heavy rainfall events, now can become perhaps twice as common.
2: And hurricanes and typhoons are really heat engines, right? They draw on the heat from the ocean. And it's not in dispute that the oceans have gotten warmer.
6: That's right. The oceans have gotten warmer by about a degree Fahrenheit, something like that, since the late 1800s. And that heat energy is available to power stronger storms, like you said.
2: And the prediction through the climate models, is it for more hurricanes and typhoons or more forceful storms?
6: The prediction from the climate models is for actually perhaps a decrease in the total number of hurricanes and typhoons, maybe not a lot, but a few percent anyway. But the curve is going to shift so that when these storms do form, even though maybe there'll be fewer of them, the strongest ones will get stronger. And the rule of thumb is if you increase the ocean temperatures by 3 degrees Fahrenheit, that will increase the maximum winds of a hurricane by about 10 percent. So a Category 3 hurricane is now almost a Category
2: 4. Well, Jeff, what is the role of anecdotal stories in determining how the climate is changing or, or change in weather patterns? Because people do say, you know, it feels as though there are more storms or it feels as though spring is coming earlier. The droughts seem to be more severe and so forth. We hear these stories about, of people and not just farmers who are noticing that the weather, the season, they're changing.
6: Yeah, old farts like me who've been around for 50-plus years, we see the changes. I mean, looking out at the trees right now in the fall here, fall is now coming 10 days later than it used to 30 years ago. And now spring is coming 10 days earlier. So if you've been around, you notice these things. And the wetter places are getting wetter. Here in Michigan, we had our wettest year on record this year. I've never seen anything like it. And as far as the jet stream patterns go, which kind of control where storms go and where we get extreme weather events, they've kind of gone haywire since 2010. We've seen a remarkable number of extreme jet stream patterns that have really caused some remarkable extreme weather events, most recently this summer in Central Europe when they had a $22 billion flood. So things are definitely changing we're no longer in the climate of the 20th century. It's a brand new atmosphere, brand new climate, and we should expect to see the changes accelerate.
2: So, my question, which is, what is the role of those anecdotal stories? The answer, it sounds as though they do have merit. I mean, whether or not they're predicted by the climate models, and maybe they are supported by the climate models, it's indisputable that there is change and that people are noticing it.
6: Yeah, anecdotal stories are valuable. I mean, people's experiences are valid. I mean, We understand we're all connected by the same atmosphere, and when we experience changes to it, then the stories that we're telling about it are going to ring true.
2: And finally, and this is really asking your opinion on this subject, uh, the the envoy from the Philippines broke down in tears at the UN conference uh, at the beginning of the conference, and it was really an illustration that... If that storm is a result of climate change, it is hurting people directly. And I wonder if that's what it will take, that more people and influential people being affected personally by our changing climate for there to be any meaningful global resolution.
6: Yeah, there needs to be a wake-up call. And certainly we've had many of these wake-up calls. For the Philippines, it was Super Typhoon Haiyan. For the U.S. last year with Superstorm Sandy, a lot of leaders were saying, hey, you know, this is uh, serious stuff. We better maybe wake up and do something about it. Uh, We've seen in the past with ecological issues, like when the uh, Ohio River caught on fire and the Cuyahoga River in the early 70s, that helped spur the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Water Act. Back in the 1980s when the Antarctic ozone hole opened, that shocked people into trying to eliminate chlorofluorocarbons. And with the climate boy, we're sure getting hit pretty often with uh, some pretty unprecedented sorts of weather events. I would think that as we keep seeing these sorts of things, that will start to motivate some action. Uh, It still hasn't been as strong as I would hope for, because there is a very well-funded effort by the fossil fuel PR industry to deny what's going on, and that's really slowed things down. But eventually, it's going to be pretty obvious that we're changing the climate in severe and unexpected ways, causing dramatic shifts in the weather. And the basic life support systems of the planet are under attack.
2: Jeff Masters, thank you so much for speaking with us. All right. You're
1: welcome. Jeff Masters is a meteorologist at Wonderground.
2: Now, we're talking about the direct damage from massive storms. But Jeff said he wanted to add a final thought, and that is that there is another consequence triggered by a changing climate that's equally and possibly more important.
6: You know, storms get a lot of attention because they're dramatic and they affect a lot of people all at once. But the thing that's really going to kill us with climate change is drought. We've seen in human civilization in the past, drought has caused more crashes of civilizations than in any other natural phenomena. When the rains stop, there's no water for people to drink, no water to grow crops. People leave the cities and the civilization collapses. We saw that with the ancient Mayans, the Anasazi of Arizona, one of the ancient greek civilizations one of the ancient ming dynasties in china so drought is what we really need to be paying attention to
1: that comment about drought being you know just as important and yet we don't seem to notice it that's just the effect that it takes longer to happen when you have a storm hitting a country you know the effects are immediate drought is something that takes years maybe decades to work itself out it's like being that frog in the pot of water you don't notice that the temperature is going up But in fact, this is all just elementary physics. You put more energy into the oceans, you raise the the temperatures by even just a degree. That's a lot more energy. Of course you're going to get consequences. Typhoon Haiyan, Sandy, Katrina, they all left behind grim body counts and massive structural devastation. But the misery doesn't end there. In many areas, a cleanup is far from beginning. Debris lines the streets, and in some cases, the only place for a wash is the water in the harbour, which is now more polluted than ever. Adding to that problem, the many bodies still floating in the ocean. Proper search missions to find the missing have only just started. Coming up, secondary effects. Medical emergencies follow in the wake of superstorms. But a hotter planet hurts our health in other ways by increasing the incidence of illnesses such as asthma and allergies and tropical diseases in areas that have never seen a palm tree.
2: Why we're not ready for this health care crisis, but before we all despair, there is hope. How we might save ourselves if we act now. The heat is on. On Big Picture Science.
1: If you had to pick a poster critter for climate change, it might be the polar bear. This big bleach-white lumbering ball of fur adrift on an ever-shrinking sliver of ice has become an iconic symbol of a melting Arctic. And it's easy to make the connection
2: between a warming planet, the loss of habitat, and these animals swimming ever longer distances, up to 30 miles now it turns out, to find stable ice. But there's another suitable poster animal for climate change that gets little airtime, Although, in the air is where you'll find it.
1: The Ides albopictus, also called the Asian tiger mosquito, won't win any beauty contests. And people don't have the urge to save it as much as they do to swat it.
2: And well, they should. The Asian tiger mosquito
1: is a carrier of dengue fever. And this gets to the secondary effects of climate change, effects that are less obvious than the consequences of melting ice. A hotter planet prompts temperature-sensitive insects to migrate some bringing with them unsavory tropical diseases to populations that have no immunity. Journalist and contributing
2: editor at Discover Magazine, Linda Marsa, describes this phenomena and other health threats
1: in her book, Fevered. Okay, it's all pretty grim, but her subtitle offers a hopeful promise, why a hotter planet will hurt our health and how we can save ourselves
0: the Asian tiger mosquito Aedes albopictus arrived here in the United States in 1985 in Houston in a shipment of tires, they believe, from uh, Japan. And in the years since, the Aedes albopictus mosquito is now endemic in Connecticut and will be endemic throughout most of that region of the United States by the end of the century. So you can see how this has migrated northward. And, you know, what this means is that you now have a mosquito or a vector that can carry dengue, uh, dengue hemorrhagic fever, yellow fever. Why would why would warmer weather play a role in the migration of this mosquito? Well, because they can survive in these newly warm habitats. You know, they lay the eggs. The eggs don't survive in the cold weather and the frost, but now they're surviving these milder winters. Now, it's not just that mosquitoes are moving to new areas and that the vectors are moving to
2: new areas that includes um, ticks and also fungus. Yes. You, you write about about that. But it's that the warmer weather awakens once dormant diseases. And when I read that,
0: it gave me a chill. That to me is almost the scariest part. Now, we had this outbreak of Hantavirus pulmonary syndrome, uh, not this past summer, but the summer before in Yosemite. I think you may have remembered that. Uh, two campers died. And the really chilling aspect of this was that thousands of campers were exposed and you know the climate patterns that we're going to see with climate change are for example you're going to have uh, severe drought followed by these times of intense precipitation so the heat kills off all the predators for, say, the deer mice that are what spreads this. And then you have this heavy rain so that the food that the deer mice eat sort of explodes and then the population of deer mice explode. And because their natural predators have been killed off, that population explodes and you sort of get this aerosolized fragments that are in the air that people breathe in. And this is the Hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. Now, there are other illnesses that are brought about by increasingly
2: air quality uh, when the air gets muggier and it gets dirtier you write that allergies and asthma are on the rise in those conditions now let's just take asthma you write that it's increased by 50% scientists told you each
0: decade for the last 40 years But what is the evidence that it's linked to a changing climate? Well, here's how it's linked to a changing climate. It's sort of twofold. You know, there's one aspect is that, you know, every year we dump 32 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And, I mean, where does this stuff go? It forms carbon domes over cities so that what we're having are, you know, higher and higher particulate matter in the air that we breathe. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is that, you know, it's just basic chemistry. You know, as you get higher temperatures, it cooks these particulates and it makes that ground level smog that is so detrimental and is one of the main drivers behind asthma. Well, Linda, you write toward the end of your
2: book about the need to develop a medical Marshall Plan. Now, this is referring to the $13 billion plan after World War II to help feed and rebuild Europe. What are the signature components of the Marshall Plan that you'd like to
0: see applied to prepare for our coming health crisis? Well, I I think one of the things that I was very gratified when I went around the country is that public health officials and civic leaders really are already taking climate change very, very seriously. And there are as the saying goes, shovel-ready pilot programs all around the country that have been implemented that really can form sort of the scaffolding of what I call a medical marshal plan, the kind of things that we need to do to prevent deaths from climate change or you know increased illness and things like that. You know, New Orleans' infrastructure was completely demolished in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. You know, people were practicing medical care in tents for months afterwards and in storefront clinics, you know, and on and on. But out of this sort of network of community-based health clinics, it evolved into this network of a hundred clinics that are within the community that actually deliver better care. And it's much more resilient in face of a disaster because if one clinic shuts down because it's flooded, another clinic can take up the slack and they're all working together. Another aspect of it is that, you know, in Chicago and in Philadelphia they had some very, very serious heat waves about a decade or so ago, and both of them, especially Philadelphia, instituted a heat wave alert plan that has become a model for the rest of the world. Because what they found is that during heatwaves, especially here in this country, the people who are most vulnerable Dying during a heat wave were the elderly and the young. So they instituted these heat wave alerts in at least a dozen cities across the country. We need to adopt this on a national basis. But I'm wondering in what ways, why you draw on the Marshall Plan. Now, what was it about the way
2: that that was executed that you find compelling and that we could draw on for, you know, for protecting ourselves for what's coming with the health crisis? Was it the speed with which it was implemented? Was it the generosity of the funding that went into it, many billions of dollars, or that it was implemented? on many different fronts. You know, why the Marshall Plan and not say the, the Manhattan Project of of medical plans?
0: Well I I thought originally of calling it the Manhattan Project. I somehow that didn't fit with trying to save lives in a public health way. And I really looked at the Marshall Plan that was really very humane, outpouring and it was very coordinated. It was, you know, directed by George Marshall who was the Secretary of State, who had also, you know, been the director of the army, you know, during World War II. So he brought that kind of military precision to bear on this kind of execution on it. And so that's why I thought that that was a much better analogy, is that we had this united front, where we sort of, you know, brought to bear, you know, everything that we knew about saving Europe and, you know, saving a lot of the people who were you know, in grave danger after the war. And I think that we have to do that here, not only in the United States, but on a broad international level. Linda Marsa, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you for having me, Molly. I greatly enjoyed talking about this.
1: Linda Marsa is an investigative journalist, contributing editor at Discover Magazine, and author of Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves.
2: We heard Linda Marsa talk about these secondary effects of climate change, and some of them are not obvious. And recently, the Christian Science Monitor gathered together a list of off effects of climate change, sort of odd facts about how climate change is, is altering our planet.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting list.
2: Well, for example, during the weeks that the monsoon rains dropped, almost a decade's worth of rain on Pakistan, this was in 2010, the water was so slow to recede that the nation's spiders, the spiders of Pakistan, what did they have to do? The backstroke? No. They wove these elaborate cocoons in the trees along the side of the river because there was so much water that they couldn't be on the ground. So these trees were shrouded in this ghostly cocoon, like that sort of stuff that you put up for Halloween. And and in fact, if you want to see a photo of this, it's it's on our blog at bigpicturescience.org. And this was a phenomena that
1: the residents had never seen before. Spooky. But, you know, there was another effect in that list, and that is the acceleration in the growth of the Alps. So the Alps are getting taller? Yeah, they they were getting taller before, but they're getting taller more quickly now. And it's because the glaciers have melted. All that heavy ice has been taken off the top, and so it's just uh, rising a little faster as the continent springs back.
2: There was something else that was interesting. We all like to go to the movies, and... In 2012, there was a shortage of one of our favorite movie munchies. Gotta be popcorn. It was popcorn. Why didn't you say milk duds? I
1: always get the popcorn because, after all, it's only $20.
2: Okay. And the reason for this, which is is not amusing, uh, is that there was this prolonged drought in the Midwest. And as a result, in 2012, there was a shortage of popcorn.
1: Wow. Shortage of popcorn. Well, that's a perk that you miss. And of course, it's bad for the movie theaters because that's where they make their money. But it gives you some idea of the many ways in which we're being affected by climate change. Of course, there are far more serious things to worry about. But to understand those, we first have to do the acronyms. I mean, science is not science without acronyms, or what I call S-N-S-W-A. Did you just come up with that? Yes. It's, I think it's very clever and easy to pronounce.
2: Now, The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is the leading international group that assesses climate change, and that's pretty much all in the title there. It was started by a number of UN agencies, including the WMO, which is the World Meteorological Organization, in 1988. And the goal that it laid out for itself was to determine the impact of climate change. As a result, the IPCC releases assessment reports
1: every few years. Now, these are the guys whose work earned them the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. There are 195 government delegates. That's the I in intergovernmental. They meet regularly to decide policy stuff. You know, what should countries do to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, for example? Thousands of scientists contribute papers to the IPCC for review, and the IPCC appoints other scientists to act as reviewers and then report back to the delegates, who will then cross-examine the scientists on their findings. So they're all arguing and talking together. Presumably over many, many cups of coffee. Yes. Then they come out with a consensus, and we call that an IPCC assessment report. These reports make your PhD thesis look like a haiku.
2: (laughs) Okay, but the IPCC is distinct from the UN group that gathers to discuss what to do about climate change as they did in Warsaw. Their talks occur annually as countries try to decide how to make sense of the IPCC
1: reports and what course of action to take. And the goal of the UN? To get countries to commit to reducing greenhouse gases by 2020. That's it in a nutshell. But, of course, the reality is complicated. I mean, when is it not?
2: Okay, and here's why it's complicated. The meeting attendees are drawing on the conclusions of the IPCC and the science. But while the IPCC is doing good science, the reports are built on a scientific consensus, which means that it will be the most conservative assessment of the data. It has to be so that everyone
1: will sign off on it. And some think that that caution is outdated. Fred Pierce... With 20 years of experience in environmental reporting, an environment consultant to new scientists has written about the growing criticism from some, and that includes IPCC members themselves, that the IPCC is being too careful in its official statements about climate change, reporting out only the lower range of higher temperatures and sea level rise and not the scenarios that might lead to monster Typhoon Haiyan or Superstorm Sandy. Plus, they failed to emphasize other goodies, other effects, such as feedback loops that would accelerate the melting of ice.
2: So what is the responsible thing for a good scientist to do? Fred Pierce explores that question as it relates to the IPCC in his article for the online environmental magazine Yale Environment 360. Has the UN Climate Panel outlived its usefulness?
5: The IPCC's job is to provide a consensus for politicians about what the science is saying about climate change, so that the politicians, when they sit down in their parallel discussions to negotiate climate treaties and what to do to prevent dangerous climate change, which uh, 20 years ago they agreed to try and prevent, they'll know what that means and what they need to do to achieve it. The IPCC has been going for 20 years, producing regular reports to uh, advise the policymakers.
1: And it issues these reports at intervals that are measured typically in years. Why yes. that interval? Is that just a matter of letting the research accumulate?
5: It, it is. They're very large reports. They come in, they weigh in at thousands of pages, so they take four or five years to produce. So more or less, as they've finished one cycle, they assemble a team of new scientists, and we're talking about hundreds of scientists here, to start work on the next one. So these are large kind of juggernaut-style Enterprises.
1: And these are to tell the member states of the U.N. countries around the world what they can anticipate or also
5: to tell them what they should be doing. Uh, They don't tell them what to do, but they do tell them what the consequences of not doing something are, if I can put it that way. So, I mean, this this is an intergovernmental panel and therefore the governments sign off on these reports. They have a series of working groups. The, The one which is reported most recently is on the science of climate change. But they also have parallel groups which look at the impacts of climate change and also what to do about it. Uh, I think usually the, the science one has the biggest sway because, if you like, if you don't know the science, you don't know what to do next.
1: Perhaps more important than what the IPCC says is what it doesn't say. I mean, this has led to criticism of the IPCC that it's being too careful, it's being too conservative in its pronouncements. So what's the nature of that criticism?
5: Yeah, there is there is criticisms. Um, I suppose because it's a consensus document, any kind of any any document produced by a committee tends to sort of rub off the the, the more difficult edges. Um, but there are increasing body of scientists who think that, for instance, sea level rise could be greater than the the models predict. You see, what happens here is is that the IPC scientists basically try and work out what's going on, plug the changes into their supercomputer models of how the atmosphere and how the climate system works and then come out with some numbers to make some projections about where we're going. The problem is they can't quantify all the things that they think are going on so they're getting better perhaps at quantifying the breakup of the big ice sheets and the impact that that might have on sea level rise so they've ramped up their expectations about the amount of sea level rise that we might expect in the next century and And even more what we might expect after that but there are other things that they're still very very uncertain about modeling about quantifying and therefore they don't appear in the models and the one that people are most concerned about at the minute is whether as the permafrost in the far north melts and as the oceans warm and warm the seabed, very large amounts of naturally occurring vegetable matter may start releasing methane, and some of it is already methane frozen in the seabed and in the permafrost. Some of this methane might come up sorry I'm I'm English so I talk about methane you're an American you'll talk about methane (laughs) Uh, methane coming up into the atmosphere and methane is a pretty serious greenhouse gas it's a more serious greenhouse gas in terms of bangs for your buck than carbon dioxide and that could really accelerate global warming. So what some of the the critics of the caution of the IPCC are saying is that maybe in the second half of this century, or maybe even after that, the warming effect could unleash methane into the atmosphere, give a huge kick to global warming, and one over which we'd have no control. In other words, they say that at that point you might reach kind of runaway uh, global warming effect, which even if we shut down all our our own sort of man-made emissions, we would be able to do nothing about that. And that's, that's scary. And one of the things also that the critics say is that maybe the policymakers should know about that. So the cautious scientists say, well, we can't put that in our models because we really don't know, we can't predict it, and it's a bit unquantifiable, so we'll leave it out of our models. And they say, well, that's the good science, that's the proper scientific approach. But the critics say, yeah, but it's the scary scenarios that the politicians and the policymakers want to know about because if they're going to prevent, as they have promised, dangerous climate change happening, it's the dangerous scenarios, it's the scary... You know, 10% options, not necessarily the most likely thing to happen, but something that could happen. They need to know about that. This sounds like
1: the kind of problem that I would have if I were considering buying earthquake insurance here in California. Uh, yeah, the, the average prediction of what will happen to my house in the next 50 years is nothing, as far as earthquakes go. But on the other hand, what I need to know is what's the worst-case scenario. And it sounds like they're not giving the worst-case scenario. They're giving maybe the average scenario or the most likely. The most I mean, like- they give, a,
5: they, give a, they give a range, but what they can't. But bec- uh, the range is constrained by what, if you like, sorry to be pedantic, but what they can quantify. What what? what they can put a number on, you know, what they can put in their models, what they they can see how the science would work. And there is a fringe area, may turn out to be not so fringe, which they can't quantify, they can't put in their models. And that's the area that I think is causing uh, increasing concern by quite a lot of scientists, but also policymakers.
1: Fred, you wrote a piece asking if the UN had outlived its usefulness. So what did you mean by that?
5: Well, I was talking about the IPCC, whether the Intergovernmental Panel had outlived its usefulness. I mean, I'm asking the question rather than giving the answer, but it seems to me that its heroic days are over. It's laid out the basic landscape. We know enough to act. I mean, anything it's going to tell us in future is not really going to fundamentally change uh, the reasons for acting, we know enough to act, and if, we, if we're not acting on the basis of what we've been told so far by the IPCC, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that anything else that they can say will help us. So they've done the heroic stuff. They got the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, e- excellent, that's good. But what we're now beginning to see is the kind of divisions opening up among the scientists, because they are rather frustrated at the failure of the world to act. Some of them are saying, well, we're being too cautious, and then some of them are saying, well, maybe, uh, you know, are we right to say this? And they're getting kind of fractious, and they're getting a little bit argumentative. And the purpose of the IPCC is to write a consensus. That's what the politicians asked it to do. That's why they set it up. Give us the scientific consensus. And I think it's done that, to be honest. So, as I say, um, I, I wonder whether a huge amount of work that goes into writing these reports. I mean, they have committee after committee after committee and they review and they review and they review and they're terribly punctilious about this. Um, And some people are beginning to say, well, maybe, you know, the returns from that are just kind of diminishing. We're, you know, we're not really delivering a consensus, we're just arguing more and we're spending all our time on this. Maybe we should just go back to do the science because the IPCC is basically a review process. It doesn't do new science. It reviews the science that's been done in the previous few years. So maybe they should just go back and go and carry on with the science and try and answer some of these questions more quickly rather than spending all their time arguing about it. It's a judgment call, I don't know. But you know, it's ultimately it was set up in order to help politicians reach decisions. So it's, it ought to be the politicians who decide what they really want from this body. Fred Pierce,
1: thank you so very much for talking with us today.
5: Pleasure. Thank you.
1: Fred Pierce is a
2: freelance author and journalist and environment consultant to the New Scientist. He's based in the U.K. His article, Has the U.N. Climate Panel Outlived Its Usefulness?, appeared on the online environmental magazine, Yale Environment 360. You can find a link to it on our website,
1: bigpicturescience.org. You know, uh, some cities, some states are just not waiting for the reports. They're facing what they see is immediate problems. They're doing something about it. I mean, think of the insurance market or the housing market in South Florida or the fact that former Mayor Bloomberg of New York commissioned a $20 billion, with a B study to figure out, you know, what rising sea levels will do to New York City. And then there are all these small South Sea Island nations that are considering that they're likely to go away. I mean, one nation has already bought property in Fiji to move the entire populace as the level of the sea rises.
2: Well, that brings us to the last act in this climate change discussion, action. The solutions are there, but they require tough choices. Linda Marsa pointed out some with her idea to create a medical Marshall Plan. And here's another. Stop population growth. That's next.
1: The heat is on on Big Picture Science. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Still with us? Reaching for the Valium? Well, you don't need to tell us. This climate news is a drag. It's overwhelming, unceasingly grim, and solutions feel forever out of reach. But they're not. Come on, everybody. This is us, Homo sapiens. We're the species that brought you tools.
3: Rock,
5: stick. Rock, hit, stick. Spear. See wildebeest. Throw spear. You missed
3: again.
1: Granted, sometimes we don't get it right, and not all applications are noble advancements. We just split the atom. People will love this. But we're big brain bipeds and we're clever. If our brains are smart enough to build the technology that got us into this climate mess, they can be applied to getting us out of it.
2: But it also means having the stomach to make tough decisions. For one journalist, it all comes down to the numbers, one that is many billions. He says that all our problems, environmental, ecological, social, will be easier to solve with fewer people on the planet. Current world population, 7 billion. The prediction for mid-century, 9
1: to 10 billion.
3: I'm Alan Wiseman. I'm the author of Countdown, our last best hope for a future on Earth with a question mark.
1: The question mark at the end of his title. That's because what he proposes to save us may be too radical for some, a serious effort to limit population growth.
2: But then Alan Wiseman knows something about Radical. His previous book, The World Without Us, had as its premise that humans had disappeared and that the Earth was able to rebound.
1: Alan, you wrote a book, The World Without Us, in which you described the trials and tribulations of a planet without humans. Now in Countdown, you tell us about a world with maybe too many humans. Sounds like a leitmotif here, humanity.
3: Well, look, The World Without Us actually wasn't about trial and tribulation. It was about a beautiful re-flourishing and reforestation of a planet without the daily pressures that we heap on it all the time. But the reason that I wrote that book was not because I want a world without us. I would like to have a world with us. So what I wanted readers to think about was, you know, if the world could recover that beautifully, Is there a way that we can add ourselves back into the mix, only in a much more harmonious balance with the rest of nature? But I ran into an alarming fact towards the end of my research of that book, and that is that every four and a half days, we're adding a million people to the planet, which didn't sound like a very sustainable figure. So at the end of that book, I left dangling a question. Is it possible that we have to start doing something about managing our numbers so we could possibly have a future on this Earth?
1: Help me by enumerating uh, the problems of having 7 billion people on the planet, and soon to be perhaps 10 billion, uh, the pressures they're putting on civilization.
3: Well, I would start out with the atmosphere. Uh, Our civilization now is based on our use of concentrated energy. But the exhaust of our use of concentrated energy is going up into the sky, and it's packing our atmosphere with insulation, which is making things warmer here on Earth. That warmth is being absorbed by the sea, so it's expanding and it's rising, and its chemical composition is changing. It's moving towards the acidic level of the pH scale. And all those creatures in the sea who are at the fundamental base of the whole food pyramid and the whole evolutionary pyramid that we are part of, they didn't evolve to that kind of chemical composition. So we're entering some uncharted territory now that could be undermining from the plankton all the way up to us, our ability to survive on this planet.
1: Well, that argument sounds like the one we hear from environmentalists just about everywhere in terms of cleaning up the atmosphere. Mostly what you seem to be talking about is greenhouse gases and that sort of thing. Uh, We know how to solve that problem. We just stop burning stuff.
3: Even if we did, though even if we suddenly had zero emission energy tomorrow, that still wouldn't change the fact that every one of us on this earth needs food. And right now there are so many of us on this earth that 40% of the terrestrial non-frozen planet is devoted to feeding us. And by the way, we do that largely with fossil fuels because our population would never have reached these heights if it wasn't for the invention just before world war one of artificial nitrogen fertilizer it greatly increased the amount of plant life on the planet before it was restricted to the contribution of nitrogen to the soil of a few plants the bacteria at their roots could fix nitrogen we learned how to pull it out of the sky ourselves and chemically apply it to the land 40% of us could not be here without nitrogen fertilizer. And also we know that there are downsides of it. Of course, the fossil fuels that are used to both make it and as its feedstock, when it degrades, it produces nitrous oxide, which after methane is our third most potent greenhouse gas. It fouls our rivers, and it is widely suspected now of contributing to a lot of the modern diseases that we are experiencing that are cancers in greater and greater numbers now.
1: Now, clearly there are fixes for that, and they involve using not uh, artificial nitrogen fertilizers, for example, uh, or they may be synthetic meat, something like that. There are technical fixes for these problems.
3: The problem with technical fixes is that they usually solve one thing, but they cause another.
1: What about the fact that... Uh, raising the standard of living and empowering women seems to result in a reduced growth of the population. Uh, You see that in Europe. I mean, many of those countries are either stagnant in their populations or even declining. Uh, Could that not spread to the rest of the world?
3: It's actually the best way to approach this problem. Most people on earth don't want a one-child policy. They don't want a government telling them what to do. So I went around the world talking to cultures in 21 different countries to see, is there another way of doing it. And I found several countries. A country that has had no family planning program whatsoever is Italy. Italian women are the most educated women on this planet. Per capita, they I think they have the highest percentage of women with graduate degrees. And an educated woman defers her childbearing, till she's out of school, generally, and then she's got something interesting and important and economically helpful to herself and her family to do with her life, which you can't do when you got seven kids hanging on your apron strings. So rich or poor country, you get them through high school and on the average, they'll have two children or fewer. That's the best contraception of all.
1: But our economy is based on growth, more markets, bigger markets. Is there any precedent, uh, a precedent that we would like for a non-growth economy? I mean, is there some other approach to this?
3: Growth economics always depend on population growth, or at least that's what the economists would like you to believe. For one thing, they love big populations because that keeps the price of labor cheap. That keeps poor people competing with each other for who will work for the cheapest salary, which doesn't really give us a very stable earth because we get such a disparity in income. One of the countries I went to is Japan, which now has a shrinking population because Japan had to cut off its baby boom after World War II. They lost the war. And their economy was in a shambles. And when their soldiers came home and returned to their wives, suddenly their population ballooned by 10 million. And of course, this is a country that started World War II because they needed more land to bleed off excess population. That's why they invaded Manchuria. Well, Japan realized that it had a terrible crisis. I mean, women were throwing themselves in front of trains. Uh, so they legalized abortion in 1949. This was before the birth control pill. And millions of Japanese women took advantage of that because they didn't want to watch another baby die of hunger. So today, there's a much smaller generation that's going to take the place of that overgrown old generation that's now dying off. And many Japanese economists are terrified about that. But I spend time with a very visionary Japanese economist, Akihiko Matsutani. He's with a Major Policy Institute, who sees this as opportunity. He says that there is going to be an inevitable and a gradual transition to a much more sustainable economy. It's not going to be based on all those export heavy industries based on a lot of resources and raw materials. It's going to be based on lighter industries and Workers, He said, will actually be at a great advantage. Already young people are leaving the coastal cities and they're going into the interior of Japan because that old dying generation has left homes and land available for cheap. Workers' wages will stay high because they'll be in demand. There'll be fewer of them. But because demand for stuff is going to diminish with a declining population, that means that there'll be more leisure time. People will work fewer hours and will redefine prosperity as having the opportunity to enjoy a more breathable earth. That actually sounds kind of like a workable future to me.
1: It it sounds like the Silicon Valley to me. In many ways, we have what's called a knowledge economy here. Right? Everybody has a pretty good lifestyle. Not everybody, but uh, a large fraction of the population does. But on the other hand, I think you'd find that the consumption and the energy usage here in the Silicon Valley is not less than in other places.
3: And that is a problem that I absolutely acknowledge. You know, a lot of people say to me, "Well, isn't the problem not population but consumption?" And sure. It's both things, really, because who's doing the consuming? You know, if you multiply consumption by population, you realize that you and I are sitting in the most populous country on the planet. I don't know what to do about consumption. And, you know, even those of us who understand the problem and we try to minimize our carbon output and live as simple a lifestyle as we can, we're still all addicted to energy. Uh, We still need food. So the one problem that I think that we already have the technology for, and it's very inexpensive technology, is the one that could help us control the numbers of consumers. You know, for less money per year than the United States was spending per month in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, slightly over $8 billion, we could provide contraception for everybody on Earth. And if we combine that with the opportunity for education for females, This problem would solve itself, and we would bring our population gradually over the next couple of generations to something far more sustainable, and we'd have a fighting chance to figure out how to apply our best technology to strike a workable truce with the rest of the planet.
1: Alan Wiseman, thank you so much for being
3: with us. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Alan Wiseman is the author of Countdown, Our
1: Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, The scientists and journalists that we've heard from have, of course, made a point of the enormous destruction of these big storms, droughts, also things that you don't think about, like disease and migration of noxious insects. Any one of these, it would be difficult to say that's due to climate change, but the ensemble is a very sobering fact.
2: But they also presented the idea that while these are serious problems that our planet is facing... There are solutions. They're not easy and it requires that we gird ourselves but that we can do it and perhaps save ourselves if we act soon. Well, thank you to our staff. They save us. Every week, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
1: We're grateful to support from Google, also Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced here at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to The Heat Is On. You can find more
2: Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app.
1: If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you figure it will somehow remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show.
2: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved,
6: we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?